Thanks for pressing play. How do you build a startup, or really any breakthrough idea, from the very beginning to launch and success in the new native digital world? And how do we connect and celebrate with our colleagues, people that we work with in this new native digital world? Well, our guest today has thought a lot about both of those questions. You see, he's my friend and collaborator, the founder and CEO, although he prefers chief fun officer of Airspeed, and his name is Doug Campbelljohn. And Doug and I have been working together for a few years, and it has been remarkable to see how Doug and his team, on one hand, has stayed true to a true North vision, to solving a problem that matters, in, uh, in his case, how to connect and celebrate in the native digital world. But at the same time, being super flexible in both thinking, product development, and marketing in terms of how we execute on that true north, how we solve that problem. And all startups are an ongoing experiment. (laughs) Recently, I was in a conversation with another startup founder, and she was telling me about a bunch of things they'd learned that worked and some that didn't. And she was disappointed about the things that didn't. And the reality is, when you're at the very beginning of something, positive and negative is good. It's a process of a mix of creation and discovery. And that's one of Doug's superpowers. And I think it's a superpower we all need if we're going to create a different future for ourselves, our companies, and our world. Doug is also a seasoned Silicon Valley startup founder who has uh, uh, created and sold and taken public companies. He's also been a senior executive uh, at places like LinkedIn and Salesforce. As a matter of fact, at Salesforce, he was the EVP and general manager of the sales cloud business. He's also one of my favorite founder CEOs to work with. And pay special attention to Doug's wisdom about why the questions, are you having fun? And do you care if you get fired? Are such powerful questions. You're listening to Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different, and we are the Authentic Dialogue Oddcast for business leaders, marketers, and category designers with a different mind, and for people who love real, authentic conversation. Now, why is a book about business writing a number one marketing bestseller on Amazon? Because today, more than ever, content matters. And in a chat GPT world, Obvious content built with existing knowledge is a commodity. The book's called Snow Leopard, How Legendary Writers Become a Category of One, and it's written by us, the Category Pirates. And Snow Leopard will teach you how to create radically different, radically valuable content. Snow Leopard is the first book about writing and content creation through the category design lens. It also features the results from the largest category science research project ever done on nonfiction books. Using data, we unlocked for you why certain ideas tip at scale and why most flop. Go to Amazon.com today and pick up your copy of Snow Leopard, How Legendary Writers Become a Category of One. Now, as Joey Ramone said, hey ho, let's go. Well, Dr. Campbelljohn, it sure is great to see you. Great to see you, Dr. Lockhead. <laughs> Where are you today? Uh, I'm in Colorado this week. Oh, how nice. Are, are you doing some fun and some work, or what are you doing? Some fun and some work. An old buddy uh, who lives in Denver came up. We were doing a little skiing this weekend. Got a few days before the end of the season, which uh, in some parts of the country, maybe like July, like Tahoe, but up here it's... Uh, it's uh, Aspen's going to close down at the end of this week. Oh, wow. Well, I, I have many ski days scheduled in front of me in California because, uh, yeah, I, I th- it looks like Mammoth might be open past July 4th. Crazy. And I know Alpine has said they're going to be open until July 4th and, and a few others. So, uh, yeah, me and bud- my buddies are hoping for a big uh, spring skiing season. Um, you want to you see if we can get a couple days uh, on the hill together before it ends in California? Let's do it. Let's break out the the swim trunks and the and the tank tops and go. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. 
So I've been very much looking forward to this conversation because uh, independent of our regular conversations, there's so much I want to sort of dig into with you because I think, you know, having been involved with Airspeed since fairly early on, I've seen you lead the team through a, what you might call creation and discovery process that I have found fascinating, even though I've been part of lots of different startups. So I'd love to maybe start by asking you, Doug, how do you think about creating a startup? It's a great, great question, Chris. Um, and thank you for having me. Um, I, you know, there's a great expression, I think it was Spielberg, um, uh, that said the difference between good, a good director and a great director is how much you leave on the cutting floor. And so I think, uh, I think entrepreneurs are always pattern rec- recognizing problems to go solve. I, in fact, keep something I call the suck list things that suck, right? And I just <laughs> keep a running list of things that are terrible. And some like death and lines at the DMV, I might not be able to solve anytime soon. Uh, but some are just an idea that sticks with you and the good ones don't go away. And it becomes something that kind of gets stuck in your craw. And um, in the beginning, it's this, you know, fragile embryo that you can't, um, you know, it's it's not really formed yet, but you have a feeling like this is something that I could really spend the next, you know, decade of my life kind of pursuing. And I always believe what's important is to be uh, really firm on the vision, but kind of loose on the details. And I think what what I've done here and done before and what you've witnessed is is exactly that. From day one at Airspeed, Um, we talked about saying, hey, listen, we want to help employees feel more connected and celebrated. Um, Exactly how we get from point A to point B um, has changed along the way, uh, but the end state has always been clear. And there's something interesting about all of that that you just said that I interpret. So let me see if I'm interpreting it the way you want me to, which is you've got a vision direction, what you could also call a problem direction. Mm Mm-hmm but not a product one specifically. And and let me tell you what I mean, because I've seen you do it. The original product idea is fairly different from what is being developed today. Yes. Is that a fair statement? Fair statement. And yet the, the vision, the problem, the, the, how do we connect and celebrate people we work with that has been firm. Correct. And yet I've seen a lot of entrepreneurs who are just obsessed with a, product vision or a product direction and they go uh you know to the wall for that and then they wake up one day and they call uh folks like me and go help me figure out a problem that this new carbodingulator i made that is so cool and awesome can help people solve and you've inverted it in a way that i have found at least doug to be quite unusual well thank you um yeah i think there's a bunch of things that that uh i've seen in the valley over my decades of time um, that uh, I, I don't necessarily agree with. I think the lean startup movement, uh, for example, went too far and got people thinking that, oh, well, if this, if this idea doesn't pan out in six months, I better pivot to something radically different. Um, and I've also seen a lot of people uh, focus on the hot technology of the, of, the, of the moment. Look at people who just said, oh, I'm going to go do a crypto startup or I'm going to do a Web3 startup. And now everybody's, of course, doing a, a generative AI startup. Um, and there'll, there'll be, you know, a ton of great companies that come out of each of those movements. But, uh, you know, if you're really saying, I just fell in love with the technology and then I'm going to try to find a problem to go apply it to, um, odds are you're not going to succeed. And so I always find it's a find a problem that's personally meaningful to you. Um, and then the how you actually get there um, can be flexible and change over time. But if the problem statement is really a true problem statement that resonates not only, you know, in your heart, but in the hearts of others, then you have a great chance of actually making it. Thank you for that. In my experience, startups and development teams, product marketing into development teams really do in a lot of cases, Doug, take exactly the opposite approach. Mm -hmm. So I wonder as kind of a leader, what's it like when, because I I saw this happen at Airspeed, thrashing on a particular product direction to fulfill the connected and celebrated problem slash vision, try that 
had what we thought maybe was some success. And we went, mm, I don't know if we're getting there. And then shift. And and right now, Airspeed, you know, we're on our, I don't know, second or third or fourth shift, I guess, depending on how you want to uh, think about it from a product perspective. But what's it like for you when you sort of the product team is marching or down a feature set sort of objective and there's a product plan, PRDs, MRDs, all those things in place. And you and some of the rest of the team show up and go, hmm, we've been thinking and we think maybe we ought to. <laughs> so so how does that work, particularly when, you know, engineers fall in love with their products? Yeah, well, the key is not to fall in love with your products. The key is to, like, repeat early and often um, that we're we're on this mission and that the that things may change along the way. It's not to say that you don't have moments where your morale is impacted and you need to make sure you're communicating the why. And you, you can get into situations where if you're doing that too often or without enough forethought or explanation that you can really get uh, people who just get whiplash from that process. Um, but I think that we've, we've taken an approach here. The, this current approach that we have at Airspeed is probably the most... Um, balance that I've ever experienced in my career. Uh, so we'll do things where we'll, we'll plan out like three months, which is plenty long for me. You know, I mean, the end state is much further out, but like, what are we developing for the next three months? We break it down into these one month chunks. We do one week sprints within that. So each, you know, each Thursday we have our all hands meeting for the company and we'll say, great, you know, we're going to spend half that meeting bug bashing the latest release and talking about what's, what we're going to release. So within a month, theme we'll say here's the theme for the month and then each week we're going to go release successive things so we have this nice balance of like hey we're not we're not changing things week to week we're not the vision's not changing the the, the actual execution's not changing that rapidly we're we have enough far out that marketing and customer success and development can plan for things but that you've also got the ability to be flexible and change things and adapt along the way and so when the feature set changes or we say, hey, we're going to um, focus on um, one thing or not the other, or we're going to focus on um, one platform or another, how do you, I guess, cultivate a, a culture, particularly within engineering and products, where they view that as cool, exciting, fun, and smart, not terrible, horrible, you're effing me over and giving me confusion headaches? <laughs> I think part of it is if, if the end goal is always the same, then a lot of that work that you've done before is not going to go to waste. It's not, it's just, may, we may put it on the shelf, but we're going to resurrect it and bring it back. So in the example of Airspeed, as you witnessed, we started off thinking, hey, this should all be a mobile app. We're going to basically build an internal Instagram. It's all going to be about photos. It's going to be a lot about like sharing those personal moments. And we probably spent too much time developing the initial app and before we put it in customers' hands. And then when we put it in customers' hands uh, towards the end of last year, everybody said, this is cool, but it's yet another app. And oh, by the way, I live in Slack. I live on my desktop. Can you make this happen there? And we heard that enough times that it finally sunk into our brains like, hey, maybe the initial wedge isn't mobile, although we think, again, still mobile will be important in the long run. Maybe Slack's the initial wedge. And rather than taking this this app that, that had all this functionality as one big thing in Slack, we broke it into these individual Slack apps so you can kind of pick and choose your functionality and get into it in a very lightweight and easy way. Interesting. You're one of many entrepreneurs I've talked to in the last six to nine months, both in the B2C and B2B world, who have sort of shifted focus to what I think of as sort of atomizing functionality. Mm -hmm. That is to say, in the beginning, they had, for lack of a better description, a bigger vision for something. And what they find out in the beginning anyway is exactly what's happened at Airspeed, which is people say, all oh, that stuff's really interesting, but it's this one little thing that you do that's really cool. We don't want another big thing because we have all kinds of big things, but we like this little thing. And now Airspeed is going after that. And I could point to several others I've talked to over the last nine months or so who've had uh, almost eerily similar experiences. And so is there a, a sort of niching down meets functionality, focus or atomization? Is this a, th is this a trend that we're seeing, Doug? Well, I think it's always been there. Um, maybe not articulate as well. And I think that the, the platforms that we have today make it easier to, to uh, execute this way. 
But, um, you know, why, I think it was Y Combinator years ago that, that had the mantra of just, just make something useful, right? And, and by definition, if you look at most startups, where they are today and the hugely successful companies are, you know, orders of magnitude larger than the original vision they had. I mean, Uber didn't start out to be Uber. It was Travis saying, hey, why don't you, me and a buddy, share a black car? You know, Facebook wasn't like the world is going to be open. It's going to be like, let's go find dates at Harvard, right? Um, so I think all these things start out as something small. And the, the whole startup exercise is in some ways trying to say, how do I find that first wedge? And then how do I build on that wedge? So if you try to boil the ocean in the beginning, you often fall flat because it's just too complicated. You know, and it really, it speaks to, hey, niche down, get focused. And as you were talking, you and I talked in the past, and this is, this is one that has sort of all knocked me over, which is this company Linktree. Oh, yeah. Which I would describe as a, essentially a landing page, right? For links. So a, a micro URL and a landing page that allows you to put a bunch of links on it. And you put that on your LinkedIn, on, on your, does it work in LinkedIn? No, it works it's in Twitter. It's mostly used for Instagram and Twitter and places like that. But yeah, it's, it's basically created a set of functionality that was missing in those platforms. And, and I don't mean to t- take anything away from Linktree, particularly when I'm going to give you the data that I just checked on. But you look at it and you go, okay, so you're going to have a, a little, you know, bit.ly type tiny URL capability that's going to put you to a one page landing page. And on that page, you can put a whole bunch of links on it to your website. You know, if you're an author like me to your book, if you're a CEO founder like you, maybe to a, a demo or a free download or whatever, whatever it is, right? What, however many links you want to put up there. But it's a seemingly trivial, very micro niche thing. And I just checked, <laughs> according to PR Newswire, LinkedIn last raised money. They raised a hundred and ten million dollars U.S. because they're an Australian company. At a $1.3 billion U.S. valuation. And so we now have what essentially should be a, a feature that is a product, that is a company that, who knows, might be an emerging category. Right. Right. It's solving a real problem. And so I think that, that what we're on here and, and what uh, you're so fucking smart about, Doug, is... Even the biggest, most legendary companies start off in these very small, quote unquote, make something useful micro categories. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think that um, the ones who, I mean, you, you see this blockchain for me is a great example of so many companies that are trying to boil the ocean and haven't started off with a small problem to go solve. And so people go, I don't, I, I don't know what the application is going to be. Um, but I mean, take an app like Calendly. It is literally just saying, how do you help two people find a time to meet? Another billion dollar plus valuation, um, incredibly successful company, great founder who just started it saying, here's, here's a problem I have that I believe a lot of other people have. Let me go solve it in a very easy to understand way. And we all use Google or Microsoft for this already. You could argue again, just like I did with Linktree, that Calendarly should be a a relatively minor piece of functionality for Google or for uh, Apple or for Microsoft. And here they are, an incredibly successful standalone company. And so as you're starting Airspeed or even more broadly, as you think about startups, and I know you do some investing and advising and and so forth as well, uh, how do you find this balance, Doug, around something that's small enough to stand out, to feel new, a new category feature, if not not market in the the very beginning, something that somebody would buy and or use from a smaller company so they're not afraid that it's not some big company they haven't heard of before. But at the same time, strikes enough of a chord that that gives you use you use the term wedge into building into uh, more things over time and being more strategic over time. How do you how do you think about where that start place is? 
Yeah, well, that's you just described the Venn diagram perfectly, um, and that's and that's kind of the that's the that's the filter on the suck list. So that's the most ideas I find as an entrepreneur. You're like get really excited about, and they have about a 72 hour shelf life, right? Because then within 72 hours, you figured out there's no way that this will ever be big enough. It's too niche, or it's way too you know competitive. Or it is, you know, um, way too complicated. You know, I'm trying to solve nuclear fusion. And, you know, your initial excitement goes from here to here, right? And drops. But I think that it's one of those things where uh, when you have something that gets past that 72-hour window, and then what I find is it, it's it kind of like it, it hangs on you. Like you're like, you just, you, you keep thinking about it. You keep waking up. You can't let it go. And it's one of those things where you say, wow, this one actually fits in that Venn diagram where I think it's big enough, right? It can be, it could be a category, it could be a, you know, a, a public company um, or of that scale. And I have a way to go start it. And the technology exists for me to go pull it off. That's when, that's when all the companies that I've done have kind of ultimately landed within that, that uh, Venn diagram overlap. One of the things your comment makes me think of is, the truth is we don't start companies. Companies start us. Yeah. Yeah. I, I often say like entrepreneurs are no smarter or different than most people. Our, our radar dishes are just tuned a little differently um, in picking things up. I mean, most people, there's a great book that was around uh, industrial design that I read years ago where most people like if they push on a door and it's pull, they blame themselves. And I think, you know, designers, entrepreneurs, people who are inventing things go, well, that's a shitty design, right? Let me go do better. I mean, the, the, the story was supposedly like even Steve Jobs when he was in the hospital, you know, like on his deathbed, practically, was sitting there redesigning the, the medical, you know, devices in his room. going, that's a terrible interface for that HP device. Or that's, you know, you just can't stop thinking about how to make something better. And, you know, that's what it all comes back to. It really is that the squirrels never stop juggling the trains, chainsaws in your head, right? It's like, yeah. like another one I find that's common amongst entrepreneurs and, and category designers is is this concept we now call reject the premise, which is exactly what you're saying, which is we're the kinds of people who look at things and don't go, oh, you know, that's interesting. We go, why the fuck's it that way? Didn't right. somebody ever think of it? Like, how often do you use something, anything? I'll give you one of my favorite pet peeves. I've been starting to travel a little bit more. And uh, so I've experienced this a little bit more now. I used to experience it all the time. Airport bathrooms. Why the fuck? Yeah, we can see where this is going. Why the fuck did we need to automate the sink and the soap dispenser? Yeah. I assume it's a money-saving thing. However, every time I stand there, because I tend to wear, you know, dark T-shirts and dark blazers and shit. It doesn't like black or dark, and you stand there, and I don't know why the faucet's bad, but the, the soap is really bad. And you wave your hand under that thing, and you wave it, and you wave it, and you swear at it, and you do all that, and then you move to the next one, and you do it again. And every time this happens to me, I think, hey, did the fuckers who built this thing ever try it? Did you ever try it? That's the first thing I think. Yeah. And then I think the punishment for building products like this is you should be locked in a room with just your product for three years. <laughs> but that's how my crazy brain works. But regardless, when we see stuff that seems, that we question everything, I guess, is, is my point. Yes? Is that how it feels to you, Doug, or how does it feel? Yeah, no, I, I think it's one of those things where, I mean, just look at your own behavior. And what, what's remarkable is if you ask people what they want, they generally give you a whiter, brighter, faster version of what they already have. Right. So I think great entrepreneurs, great technologists, it's kind of like the Wayne Gretzky, you know, skate to where the puck's going to be. You kind of understand what the technology is capable of. And you, un it's not like you're listening to the analysts and, you know, just doing a bunch of customer surveys. You're actually understanding how work gets done. And very, very often it's something that's personally meaningful to you. Right. I think, you know, Apple was invented because the Steves decided they wanted to build something for themselves, right? Facebook was Mark building something for himself. Travis was building Uber for himself. So a lot of times it's solving a problem that is personally relevant to you. And when that 
switch flips. I mean, if you lived in San Francisco pre-Uber, pre-Lyft, your, your experience of transportation was you would call the cab company and sometimes between somewhere between 10 minutes and never, it would show up. You had no idea how it was. And the minute Uber turned on, like it was just, we're never going back the other way, right? And you think about that in terms of all these experiences, whether it's Airbnb, whether it's, you know, PayPal, Venmo, you know, people are very uh, adaptable to um, a change once it's presented with them, but it takes somebody to say, ah, this is possible. And let me, let me, let me put these, these two pieces together. Yeah. We, in category design, of course, we call that founder category fit. Yeah. Uh, some people call it problem founder fit, you know, and look, it's not a mistake that Jack O'Neill, founder of the O'Neill wetsuit company, inventor of the surf wetsuit and category designer of the category itself, uh, for years, I don't know if it's still the case, but for years when you bought a wetsuit from them, they had a tag on it with a picture of Jack with his beard and his eye patch and you just right out of central casting. And, um, and there was a little uh, note on there from Jack that said, I'm just a surfer. I wanted to surf longer. Yeah. Yes. I mean, it's a story of Patagonia and Von Schoenard. It's a story of Jake Burton. Yep. You know, it's, it's, you know, it's people are problems. Three of my big heroes. Yeah. Mine yeah. Too. Yeah. And so you're somebody who is a multi-time and might I say multi-generational founder CEO and uh, had successes, had failures. And now you're doing this now. Uh, Airspeed is two and a half, three. How old is Airspeed? Well, we'll be coming up on our two year anniversary this year. Okay. Yeah. You know, so when you drink as much as I do, it's hard to keep shit straight. (laughs) But so two years. So, you know, this is a, a, I remember at the beginning of COVID, we were wondering, you know, are we going to have a COVID baby boom? Because everybody was going to be locked in the house. Of course, it appears we did not have that because we were too petrified to make our hoo-hoo's work. Um, So I guess we didn't do enough of that. But the (laughs) long story longer, let me see if I can dig myself out. Uh, Airspeed is a COVID baby is where I'm going. Is that? (laughs) Airspeed is a COVID baby. Good recovery, Chris. Yeah, well, (laughs) when you find yourself digging, try to stop. Um, And so, so, you know, COVID baby, tell me about what it's like having a two-year-old company at this point in time, going through COVID, going through this, you know, economic boom, venture boom, now bust, uh, all the weirdness with, you know, whether it's the stock market or crypto or, and now the emergence of AI. I mean, for a company that is two years old, Airspeed has lived, mm-hmm. you know, 250 years in terms of the change that has been going on around it. So tell me about what it's like to be a seasoned entrepreneur dealing uh, with these kinds of times. Um, I'm very grateful to be a seasoned entrepreneur going through this because you realize that the the minor ups and downs, it's kind of like the, the, the MLK, the long arc of history, Ben Storch justice, you know, like the, for me being able to say to zoom back and have, have the ability to widen the aperture and go like, these are all minor perturbations in the cycle. Um, so, you know, COVID there's all this stuff about people like, oh, everybody's going to return to work. Right. You know? Not true, but Airspeed really started out of my experience. I I had been recruited over to Salesforce to be GM of Sales Cloud. Um, Six weeks later, you know, starting in February of 2020, six weeks later, we're all doing this. It's all Zoom. It's all online. And on the one hand, it was was fantastic because I never want to go back to an office five days a week. I love the flexibility of it, as many others do. Uh, but I also didn't know most of my team. Um, and I, all the things that I would normally do, like, let's go grab a beer, let's go visit customers together, let's go volunteer together, were just all cut off. And so we did all the same shit everybody else did. We had Zoom happy hours and tried Zoom goat yoga and, and you know, multiple all hands meetings and, and, uh, do, questions do you have to we, get the goats Ubered or does DoorDash bring the goats? Like, no, what? no. Was, don't you remember this? There was actually a service that showed up during COVID where you could basically hire, a goat to show up on your zoom call <laughs> and yeah yeah so just see there's new categories people. everywhere doug new categories coming up all, all the time and it was one of those things where it the light bulb for me went on that i realized there was no system of record for culture right all this stuff was ephemeral like you'd set up a slack channel you'd welcome somebody to the company 
and that would wash downstream, never to be found again. Or you would put up a slide about, you know, who Chris Lockhead, the new employee was, you know, in the all hands meeting. And again, you know, that slide deck would go into some archive folder in Google Drive. And so that was really the impetus for it for me. And and because that mission has never changed from day one, all these minor things just mean we're making adjustments. If somebody says, oh, we're all going to go back to the office, I say, well, guess what? All the problems we're solving existed before COVID. It was just that we we were not really that sensitive to them. There's always been remote sales teams, remote development teams. Even when I go from floor six to four, floor five in the Salesforce tower, right? I might as well be remote. So all these kind of employee connection things always existed. Um, and then things pop up out of nowhere, like ChatGPT in December. And you're like, holy shit, I'm so excited about all the things we can now do even more than what we were trying to do before. Yes. And we should talk about that because I think there's a big part of the world that is, in my opinion, getting that horribly wrong right now. Um, and, and some folks that you and I know. So the interesting thing to me, and it's sort of what attracted me to you and the company was what I would sort of call a very giant, uh, missing or hiding in plain sight, which is as we, as we went through what we went through in, in particularly the white collar knowledge worker, creator type world that we got communication systems right with slack and and now microsoft teams and if some people want to argue good old-fashioned email okay fine certainly mm -hmm. texting and facetiming um so we got we got collaboration right with slack and email and, and the like and we got communication right with primarily zoom but what we didn't get is the thing that I think that Airspeed is pr principally about, which is that culture, human connection. How do we connect it? And sort of, I remember in our early discussions, a sort of aha of, hmm, okay, well, if you're going to uh, communicate and collaborate, don't you have to connect? And don't mm -hmm. you sort of have to connect first? And so I remember in our early discussions, the aha you helped me get was, wait a minute. I think Doug and the team here might have really figured something out, which is, hey, human beings are human beings first. Yep. And and we do want to know, you know, look, I went to the gym this morning and I saw my trainer, Abby, wonderful, wonderful gal, incredible trainer. And what does she say to me? How was your weekend? Yeah. And I said, oh, I have a wonderful weekend. How's your, and it's simple, small talk and people criticize it, but it's the begin. it's like, you know, turning the car up. And if you grew up somewhere cold, you had to let the car warm up. And if you're a certain age and you grew up somewhere cold, you had to plug the car in and then you had to let it warm up. Right. And so most human be beings in, when they're going to do something of importance together, you know, in this case, a training session, important for her, important for me and, and the other folks in the class. Um, you still want to reestablish a human connection. And then that gets to, and how's your body feeling? And da, 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 and then we start the stuff, right? But in the work, I'm getting somewhere with this, trust me. In the workplace, <laughs> we went straight to the, you know, 150 push-ups. And we yep. sort of missed the human connection part. So sort of take me back to the, the insight that now drives you and the company. Yeah, I think I've always, you know, I've always been a bit of a culture junkie. So I've been, you know, to me, I left Apple, the, the first job I had being at the college, because I, I remember telling actually one of our, our current investors, because he was like, why are you leaving? You were responsible for a quick time. You're like, you know, on top of the world. And I'm like, I figured out how to build products. I want to figure out how to build cultures now. And, and that to me is not about words on a plaque. You know, it's really about the people that you bring in, the kind of environment you set up. Somebody once, I, I just heard recently, I love this description is like great companies are places where people help each other. And if you think about like the worst companies, it's like political backstabbing and it's the complete opposite of that. And if you think about uh, when companies are just, when it's so much fun, when you've got like really smart people who are all kind of rowing in the same direction who trust each other, who've kind of gotten this language, almost like a, you know, a romantic relationship where you're finishing each other's sentences and you can say, all right, I'm just going to go and know that 
I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt and vice versa. So if you've got great people connected to each other who are connected to the mission and a clear sense of where you can go, where you're going, you can move mountains. That's where, that's what fun companies are all about. Wow. You said so much legendary there. You know, I was thinking as you I was scribbling quickly, I don't know if you could tell, um, at the beginning you, you made a statement somewhere like this. Let me see if I got it right, Doug, a person you wanted to move when you were at Apple, you weren't running QuickTime, right? Big job, right? Big, giant, important product for a very long time. You said you wanted to go from a person. So really, one of the ultimate product jobs you could have had in Silicon Valley at the time. Yep. And you said you want to go from a person who builds products, who knows how to build products, to a person who knows how to build cultures. Right. You should write a book about that. That's a, that's a very powerful thing, I think you just said. Yeah. Well, it's, and, and it's, you know, it's why I, I love startups. I love the blank page. I love coming in and, you know, I w- we'll fuck up a whole bunch of new things, you know, and in every company, but like make new mistakes. But on each one, I mean, my, my proudest accomplishments are not just that, like, we made a bunch of money from exits from startups. It's that people look back, like if you talk to people who worked at previous companies that I did, they were. They will say that was one of the best companies, if not the best company I've ever worked at, and that's that's where my you know proudest moment comes from. And so I think why I got excited about the idea of airspeed, why it just like it was the idea that wouldn't let me go, as you said, um, was I could go spend the next 10, 20 years of my life helping companies build legendary teams and help them build legendary cultures. That sounds really fun. Yeah, so awesome. Mission driven, unbelievable, everything awesome. I love you. <laughs> Was it wrong for one man to love another man? Love now, I, I know. I think the preferred plural of crisis is crises. Yeah, it should be crisi. I like crisi better. I really, I, I prefer crisis. So why don't you and I just we're starting crisi? Yeah. So we talked about in the two years of um, of the company, the crisi. And then we had the SVB run and you and I were texting as that was happening. And yep. so just just wild degrees of incredible levels of uncertainty around topics that historically startup founders and, and really CEOs of most types of companies have ha- had not had to deal with these things. So if I was a newer CEO or newer senior executive or a first or maybe second time entrepreneur who... You know, it, it made me feel so old, but it's like I was trying to count. And depending on how you want to count it, I've been through, you know, four or eight recessions um, and, and you know, some very, very big, horrible ones. And, you know, there's a lot of uh, I was talking to a VC not long ago. He was saying to me, there's a lot of founders today that uh, were not working during the financial crisis uh, in the 2008, 2009 time frame. And certainly uh the number of executives and founders and so forth who are around during the dot-com era, seem, we, we seem to be <laughs> fading to black. So what would you tell me if I was a younger person or a person who have, hasn't seen um, what you've seen? And how, how can your scars uh, save me pain? Um, you know, I was recently, one of our investors, Greylock, put on a great conference up in Napa. And um, uh, Reed Hoffman was interviewing uh, Dylan, the, uh, the founder of Figma, great guy. Um, young, young guy. Unbelievable job. Holy shit. Figma. Unbelievable story. And Reed was asking all the times he was doing these fireside chats would ask the founders and say, if you go back in time five years, what would you tell yourself as an, as an entrepreneur? And Dylan, I thought one of the best answers, he said, first, I would give myself a hug and say, it's going to be okay, right? Because at that time, Figma was, I don't even know if they were charging yet. Like if you remember the Figma story, it took them like three years to get anything to market. It took another three years before they decided to start charging people. And so if any time in the first six years of that company, you ask the VCs, how's Figma doing? They'd be like, eh, I don't know. Maybe it'll work out. Maybe it won't. And now here we are with a $20 billion, you know, you know, offer and, and, and exit. You know, $20 billion. Maybe it'll work out. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe, we'll see. Maybe, maybe not. I think you, you be can't live on that, Doug, but it's a nice start. Yeah. It's, it's it, it, you know, a million here, a million there. It adds up to real money. Um, 
the uh but, so give, but give yourself you, a hug and tell yourself it's going to be okay well but i think it's but i think i've always believed the number one quality for success and what you come to is persistence and i think what dylan did was you know kind of remain calm in the face of lots of pressure including his internal vcs saying ship this or charge for this and he was steadfast in his in his vision and just said hey listen these, you know, if you zoom back the aperture, you know, we're going to get there. And so for me, when shit like SVB happens and yeah, it caught everybody off guard and we made some, some moves over the weekend kind of thing like that, or the, you know, stock market tanking or, you know, all kinds of things, you know, happening in the environment. It's just like, it's another day at the office. Right. And so I think that's just, that's, that's, that's why you and I have the gray hair. Yeah. Then we have a little bit more wisdom coming from having been there, done that before. Um, but as ultimately, if you're having fun, you've got a great team, you're working on something that you're interested in that people will find value from, you know, the plane always lands or or it has for me. Yeah. And, uh, the other thing you're amazing at is, you're a guy who is very sort of um, up and enthusiastic about the high up and enthusiastic things like myself, but it seems you're very even keel. You're not the reciprocal on the down as it relates to when shit gets weird or tough. And, and that's an unusual quality to be, to have the rah, rah. I think you have to be, you know, can you be a pessimistic entrepreneur? I don't know how that works, but you have to believe yeah. the future is going to be different and that you can make it different. Generally, that's not a pessimistic view, but you don't have, so you have a high, high emotionally, rah, rah, let's go. You get fired up, but you, you, you have a, a real high floor. That is to say when shit, you don't lose your cool when shit's going on. You just do what has to be done. Yeah. Were you always that way? Have you developed that way? How, how did you become the Doug we know today? Um, I don't know, low resting heart rate. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I mean, like my, mine has always been a, um, if you're not having fun, why do it? Like, you know, work is taking up a huge part of your life. And I was very fortunate to work at Apple in the first part of my career and do shit that I was really in love with. And, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've certainly had moments in my career where, um, I wasn't having fun and, you know, realized I had to get out of that environment um, and was a sucky employee, you know, at that time, because if I'm not having fun, I'm not really good about shutting my mouth. Um, you and I share that quality. Um, and uh, and so, you know, I'm much better off doing something on my own and uh, working with people who I really enjoy and um working on something that excites me. And, you know, if that's there, then the rest of it is just noise. It's amazing how you develop that long-term perspective. And, uh, and, and you develop a a sense of a true North. Now, speaking of sort of a long-term view and lots of experience, you've raised some money from really the greatest in Silicon Valley and not a stretch to say the company is currently investing more money than it is uh, uh, driving in revenue. Is that a fair, fair statement? Fair statement. Uh, would it be a fair statement that current course of speed, um, airspeed will have to raise some more money at some point in the future? Correct. And so here you sit as a CEO of a company that has got this really big vision that's working on uh, micro start products to get the party started small, powerful, useful things. Mm -hmm. And you're having to walk a line now between executing on that vision that you had in 2022, but knowing that the circumstances and environment around you are very different and the funding environment as a result is very different. And so how does that uh, inform your perspective? Yeah. I mean, listen, you, you can't, um, the minute you take venture capital, right? You basically the, the clock starts, right? Because you 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 don't get to say I'm going to go run this as a lifestyle business for 20 years. And you're like, I'm going to go get you a return. I'm going to get you a fucking awesome return. And this is how this is going to be amazing together. And we're going to go grow something. Um, but 
you know, we, we were fortunate to work, as you said, with, with great folks, um, both individuals from Salesforce and LinkedIn and Sequoia and, and great VC firms like Greylock and Venrock and others, um, from the beginning who are just very patient, basically came in and I was, I was lucky with my career to, basically walk in with a 10 slide deck and me and say, why don't you give me 5 million bucks? And they said, okay. And that's what I love about Silicon Valley. And, uh, but we're at a point right now where we've said, okay, we're going to deliberately hold off on starting to charge people because we want to, what's most important is to find that product market fit, right? for me, and I know you, we have, we have different opinions about that term. Um, but to me, it's about, I still love you. I know. Uh, building something that's useful, right? Building something that people say, I am showing you through my actions that you've built something that I want to come back to and I want to keep engaging with. And we're already seeing that. We've got our first, our first five Slack apps are, uh, up on the website. You know, the first couple are in the app store already. And we're already starting to see these great, you know, kind of recurring metrics. And that's going to be our heads down focus. And if we, execute that well, which seems like early signs are, yes, we're going to get there. Then you can go back for a series A and say, great. If you go extrapolate this out and you extrapolate out the, the revenue piece, now let's go raise around and now let's go turn on the, the revenue funnel. So that'll happen in the next, you know, six to 12 months. And so here's what I'm sort of the aha that's happening in my brain as I'm soaking in the words that you're saying it doesn't sound like, well, first of all, you don't sound like a CEO founder in a sort of uh, critical crisis, uh, downturn, recession, war, COVID. You, you don't sound like that at all. Part of that is that we we never got bigger than our britches, right? So we we, we deliberately kept the burn really small, Right. You know, we are now a 15 person team, but for most of the first year or so, we we're sub 10 people. Um, and we just, I was, I was just fortunate. I had great people that I've worked with before. We got the band back together, right? And we, and we got to go, um, you know, and we already had all that trust layer built up. So we got to go execute things with a very small, efficient team. So it also just means, I mean, I've seen people who have gone out and said, this is going to be huge. It's going to be successful. Let's go hire, you know, 40, 50, 60 people. And then they go, oh, shit, we didn't get it right. Yeah. Because uh, as one of my, you know, former bosses and mentors, Steve Blank, said, no business plan survives first impact with the market. Right. <laughs> so, you know, you know, build it, get it out there and figure out what you got wrong. Uh, quite the character, Mr. Blank. Yeah. Quite you and I should have a you and I should have a <laughs> bourbon or two <laughs> and tell some stories or three, uh, yeah, or yeah. three hundred. <laughs> First twenty five are on me, <laughs> yeah. and so it sounds like you're not really running airspeed that much differently. Given let's just call the the mega macro, correct? Fascinating. Heads down, we got the plan. We're going to execute the plan, and the plan just was never. To spend a bunch of money we didn't need to spend. Right. Right. So maybe let's go there. You're this guy who's committed to culture. You're building a suite of capabilities for people to connect and celebrate, which is how culture gets built. Mm -hmm. And 15 people, no office, and no plan for her office for who knows how long. Yeah. So where's your thinking on how to build culture, particularly in in an environment where you don't have an office. Yeah. Well, I mean, part of it is we, you know, dog food or whatever term you want to use our own products. And so, you know, if, if we're not, if we're not using our own stuff to, to build our own culture, um, you know, we're failing there. And I'll give you an example. So like I used to do this exercise, you know, and this came from Jeff Wiener and, and Ryan Rosalansky and the folks at LinkedIn, they would do this go around the room thing of, uh, kudos and personal wins. So everybody would say something that they were, you know, they they wanted to go give recognition for to someone or to a team, and and it was a personal win for them. And the the it always struck me as as kind of odd because first of all, you were often giving recognition to people who were never who were not in the room and wouldn't actually receive that recognition. Two is if you miss that meeting, there was no record, there was no system of record, there was no operating system for culture. We could go, oh, I missed last week's meeting, but it turns out Chris just moved from Santa Cruz to Sausalito, right? How cool is that? 
Um, so all this stuff was on the floor. But the, the crazy part is as soon as you got 15, 20 people in a room, that was like half an hour or 40 minutes of the meeting. So we built uh, at Airspeed, one of our apps is Icebreakers. And what we found was photos are so powerful. And so I, it, the app automatically sends out a question on Wednesdays, says, what's a personal win for you from last week? And people go and use the, you know, use the mobile uh, web version of, of the Slack app. And they upload photos of their dogs or their plants or, you know, Lauren's a, a, a dumpling connoisseur and all, the, all these things that like are, are very personal. Little Jimmy won at soccer. Exactly. And it takes five minutes. So I start off the meeting and we were like, we literally just open up the Slack app and go through. We get to see all these little personal touchstone moments that are enriched with photos. And then we move on to the rest of the agenda. So that's a great example. That's one example. But don't get me wrong. Like, in I am not anti-in-person, right? I, I'm a huge believer of that for a lot of things. That's still the best way to do certain things. And so we just decided rather than having offices where you're coming in and putting on headsets and going in Zoom meetings, right? Let's put it into travel. So we every quarter put everybody on a plane and we go somewhere fun. So last last quarter we we're in Park City. We we're going to Charleston in May. Uh, we were we were back in Austin before that. And it's and it's three days that are mostly just hanging out, right? We we probably have four hours of meetings in that in that period of time. And the rest of it is volunteering, which is very hard to do remotely, we found. Um, what what kind of, of volunteering? So we've done everything from, you know, helping out at food banks to uh, uh, working in kids centers, you know, like boys and girls clubs, things like that. Um, we always try to find something that's local to the city that we're going to. And um, and lots of great food and dinners and drinking and, and, you know, hanging out. And then we'll do, you know, silly shit like ATVing or snowmobiling or fly fishing or hikes or just something like that that people want to go do. And just that, like, I, I always found, like, when, when I would take teams up to Tahoe, for example, like, there was probably more work that got done in that four-hour drive to Tahoe in the time of the chairlift than probably got done in, you know, a month of meetings. So I find it incredibly productive to have this kind of brainstorming uh, thing that's not sitting in a room with a whiteboard, but just happens to happen by putting people together in this face-to-face -face environment. Hmm. That's how we mix it up. You sound, I know you're not doing this, but I'm listening to this going, hmm, this sounds like a recruiting video now that I'm seeing. <laughs> it sounds like, oh, so I, I don't have to come to an office. I have no commute. I have no, have to deal with any of that wanker stuff. And I get to go where now? Where are we going next? To Charleston, yeah. did you say? Or where are we going? <laughs> yeah, we, we when we recruited our, our uh, lead UX guy, it was a, this great guy, Puff, from um, from LinkedIn. His wife still works at LinkedIn. She's like, wait a minute. Your next offsite is Cabo? And after that, it's Austin? <laughs> She's like, you know, and that's where that's where you get to go have the, the, the trade-off of salary, <laughs> you know, and, 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 uh, and put all your effort in the stock. But, yeah, we have a lot of fun. It's, and, and as I said, um, I am, this is, you know, all entrepreneurs say this, so it sounds cliche, but this is, uh, I say this sincerely, this is the best team I've ever worked with and I'm having the most fun I've had in years. I'm so stoked to hear that. And, you know, having gotten to know some of the team and, um, it is amazing. I mean, you have made some, you having some incredible partners, um, really it's, um, it's really a testament to you and, and your vision. Now, is so there right, any, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm going to interrupt. I mean, like we, we have, you know, over the years, I've kind of come up with these, these, uh, uh, rubrics for hiring, retention and firing. So we do, because for the longest time we would try to do like, Hey, we just interviewed this candidate, like thumbs up, thumbs down, scale of one to five. And you, you tended to, people tend to be polite, Right. Not you and I, but most people tend to be polite, right? <laughs> and it's hard to like weed out mediocre that way. So we came up with for hiring, we said it's the awesome test. Like we just literally finished an interview and you would go, Can you sit can you look me in the eye and said, That person is fucking awesome, right? And if you hesitate at all, no, move on. And we've said goodbye to some great people who we've not brought in who I'm who have landed amazing jobs and amazing companies. But for us, it wasn't that, you know, hell yes kind of moment. For retaining people, like then my, I mean, one of my main jobs is, you know, getting the right people on the bus and off the bus, right? And so retention, one of the things that I've done, and 
it loses a little bit of the spontaneity when I tell it this way, but I, I will randomly ask people, are you having fun? And I find people are really bad at lying about that, right? So if like, I just go, are you having fun? And there's like a hesitation or their voice goes up an octave, there's something I got to go dig into. There's something wrong. I got to go find, find out what's going on. And then finally, like the one that we do for, for um, uh, deciding whether somebody's a keeper or not, I just stole from this was from Netflix was a keeper test. And um, if you think about anybody on your team telling you tomorrow they're going to leave, how hard would you fight to keep them? And if the answer is not that hard, you should probably say goodbye to them now. And so those three things, you know, of keeping a small team and keeping that quality level up, as you've seen in the, in the people you've interacted with, just makes you like an incredibly efficient machine. So that's why I'm having a good time. No doubt. Yeah. Now, is there anything else, um, Senator Campbell-John? <laughs> I thought we were going to talk about AI for a while. We? Yeah. Oh, we could talk about AI. The other thing I was sort of um, was on my mind is you've had a fascinating career in that for part of it, you've been an entrepreneur, mm -hmm. but for part of it, you've been a very serious executive at some very serious companies. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you've sold companies and hung around for a while as an executive. And so um, help me think about uh, your career and, and sort of how you think about a big time executive job versus a startup CEO founder job. Yeah, well, I'll say, first of all, like people ask me a lot, you know, kind of career advice um, early on in their career. And what I would say is optimize for learning, never optimize for title and salary. Um, because the best decisions, and I made some bad decisions early on with some startups where I'm like, oh, I'm going to go there and make a bunch of money. And those turned out to be, you know, it's kind of like the love or fear test, right? And greed is tightly attached to fear. Um so anytime I've made a decision where it's like, oh, I'm going to go do that for the money, wrong choice. Anytime I've said, oh, those people seem really smart and really fun and I'm going to learn a lot, it also it has always turned out to be the best financial decision in the end as well. Um, so I just say optimize for learning. Don't don't give a shit about your title. Go be, you know, you know, chief garbage collector. Uh, doesn't matter. Right. Just go in and, and, and learn the most you can. Um, and I think that like. So it's funny, I started out my career at Apple and then it was startups for a long, long time. And, you know, as I said, I'm kind of a shitty employee. And so like my first couple of acquisitions- really? were, Never would yeah, have occurred well, to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it turns out um, I can be good. You know, as it turned out in the last couple of things at LinkedIn and Salesforce was, I think, pretty good. You, you mean you're mellowing in, or maturing or mellowing, w wisdoming? Yeah, a little bit more gray, yeah. <laughs> the, uh, but like the first company I did, my play got acquired by Bertelsmann. They, they were trying to make up a job for me. And I finally just said, just, just vest me. You're, you're just making shit up. Um, and then my second company got acquired by Symantec um, and they didn't have any rules. And I was like, totally fine. Probably because I was such a pain in the ass in the negotiation. Yeah. Um, but LinkedIn was something where they, they brought me in. And to be honest, Chris, like I probably thought about quitting once a month for the first couple of months. Cause I'm like, this is, this is too big. And LinkedIn's a fantastic company. And I was like working with great people, Jeff and Ryan and all these amazing folks. Um, and finally, a good friend of mine gave me great advice and said, he said, do you care if you get fired? I said, no. He said, well, then just speak the truth. Like do it respectfully, but just speak the truth. And so I would go in in a very, you know, Chris Lockhead style, right? And just tell people that you're not wearing any clothes or this, this pile of shit actually smells like shit and, um, kind of got earned, earned respect somehow early on. And after that, it was just smooth sailing. I got to go rebuild a, an amazing team with the sales navigator team. And, and, uh, again, we were the band of misfit toys. Like nobody on paper looked like they should be a product manager. Nobody was, was, was you know, kind of the top picks of their class necessarily. But we had like the most fun team and, and, and probably I think the most uh, uh, exciting growth path where we took Sales Navigator from a quarter billion dollar business to, uh, by the time I left, just under a billion and now over a billion dollar business in LinkedIn. You know, and of course, we had uh, Gail on recently. Yeah. And she told the whole deep sales story. So incredible. I mean, yeah. and I just got to tell you, I mean, it's so weird or wild how the 
serendipity of Silicon Valley works, right? So uh, you were there, built that business. She's now the head of marketing at that business and brought in my friends at uh, uh, Category Design Advisors to help. And they just built this new category and she's off to the races. And, you know, anyway, it's it's an interesting um, intersection of careers. You said in there something that just rang like that, like, like the, you know, the hell's bells, the ACDC bell. And he said, the, the question, do you care if you get fired? And what occurred to me as you said it is maybe not giving a shit if you get fired. Maybe that's the biggest superpower of them all. Yeah. I think so. Cause I think you know, like it's back to the love or fear and, and listen, I understand people have decisions they have to make for their families, you know, that not everyone has luxury. And I'm, I'm very aware that I'm very uh, fortunate to have that luxury to be able to say, I don't care if I get fired. Um, yeah, but, but you, you didn't, you earned that. <laughs> it's yeah, not but, like, but, but going in with that attitude of not being fearful to speak your truth. Right. And again, doing so in a respectful way, but being able to see, you know, I think if you if you talk to most great leaders, they want people. They don't want they don't want yes men. They don't want yes women. They want somebody who says, "Hey, your shit stinks." Like, and here's why, and I can back it up with data. Those are the people who end up being most successful. And so, um, I, I I just think that like uh, I I'm fortunate that like you, I got to like. Forrest Gump my way into this field where I, I love what I do and happen to not be not be good at one side or not be good at the other, but somehow this sweet spot in the middle of, of bringing, you know, marketing and product together, uh, I have a skill or two. And so, yeah, just being able to say, I, I'm, I'm not worried about what the outcome of this is going to be. The, the truth is more important than anything else. Yes. And what I've learned is that's a skill you can cultivate. And, and, and not, let me say it this way, people's who, people who, for whom their career is at least in part, uh, grounded, uh, in fear have a very different life than people who surrender that fear and just do what they think is right. Right. Absolutely. The secret 42. What's the answer, Chris? 42. I'm writing that down. Forty-two. Is that, now should I get? Should I get a um, lottery ticket and just get a bunch of forty-twos on it? Yeah, Douglas Adams. Yeah. <laughs> Anything else, um, um, Pastor Pastor Campbelljan? I'm I'm good, Reverend Lockhead. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, brother. It's a joy as always. And uh, yeah, let me just tell you, you're talking about the sort of loving work and all that shit. Um, every time I see our call on my calendar. <laughs> I, I, I'm looking forward to it. And that really is the difference, right? That really is. I mean, at the end of the day, it's as simple as that. Are you looking forward to whatever you're doing today? Yeah. And when I have you on my calendar, I'm looking forward to today. Likewise, brother. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, there he is. My uh, brother from another mother, uh, the legendary Doug Campbell, John, you can find Doug at getairspeed.com. That's getairspeed.com. He's a great follow on LinkedIn. Doug Campbell, C-A-M-P-L-E, John, J-O-H-N, on LinkedIn. All right. We would like to thank, we'd like to thank you, of course. Thank you so much for your time and attention. It means the world to all of us around here. And uh, as you know, word of mouth was is and always will be the most powerful form of marketing. And so uh, if you enjoyed this podcast, we would love a, uh, we would love a little of your WOM and your digital WOM. Please share this episode on social media and tell everybody you know that uh, they should be following their different. My friends at Bottleneck.online are the world's first dedicated distant assistant. And if you need an assistant, we'll do a legendary job taking care of you, but we'll never get anywhere near you. Check out Bottleneck.online. My friends at Interview Valet are how you get your leading thoughts on leading podcasts. I do not think it is possible to design a category, never mind do legendary marketing, without real thought leadership content. And today, one of the best ways to get your ideas into the world 
is on podcasts, guesting on podcasts. Check out my friends at interviewvalet.com. All right, I need to remind you that today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes, and this podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. It does contain content known to the state of California to cause radically different thinking. Also, must warn you, this podcast contains forward-looking statements, and all episodes do contain nuts. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Snow Leopard today, How Legendary Writers uh, Become a Category of One. If you want to create radically different content that will stand out in a sea of obvious content being created by ChatGPT, read Snow Leopard today. We're produced and edited by the greatest of all times, uh, Jason DeFilippo. And I need to tell you, Jason reads Snow Leopard. So Jason has been reading all of the Category Pirates audiobooks. So if you want Snow Leopard on audiobook, uh, you can now get it with the dulcet tones of Jason DeFilippo. Uh, Jamie J and Sarah Knox do our technical execution and they build Lockhead.com. The Bobus Brothers EX and RJ do our web development. Cedric Biros does our graphic and web design and show notes by the handsome and talented GM Simon. Our uh, law firm is Weed and Jack and our accountants are three balance sheets to the wind. We record in Dolby ADHD on Squadcast.fm. If you want to do a legendary podcast on the internet, check out Squadcast.fm. Tom Waits was right. Listen to Katie Lang. Don't forget to teach category design. Thank you, Candy Dandy. I love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this podcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go out to Scott O'Malonic, editor of Stink, I mean, Inc. Magazine. Sorry, Scotty. We just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Thank you so much. Please stay safe, stay legendary. And until we're together again, follow your different.